0: Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jake Newsom, where I ask him, how did queer people experience Nazi Germany? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Benness. We have such a good episode for you today like chills on my triceps level good episode let's dive in welcome to the show dr jake Newsom, who is a scholar of german and american lgbtq plus history his new book pink triangle legacies coming out in the shadow of the holocaust chronicles the lives and legacies of the nazis lgbtq plus victims hi jake how are you hey jonathan it's always a great day to talk about queer history Amen to that. We are in this moment where LGBTQIA plus and reproductive rights are under attack in the U.S. Mm -hmm. We're literally under attack Mm -hmm. legislatively. Like we are having families literally investigated for felonies, for having their child go to therapy, for letting their kid wear gender affirming stuff, going to a doctor for like puberty blockers, like felonies, felonies, you guys, full felonies. And reproductive rights have obviously just been fully upended. And to that, I would just say one more little thing. I feel like I'm seeing a lot of comments of folks being like, thanks for showing up for reproductive rights. We'll make sure to show up for queer rights. This is not solely a women's issue. Reproductive rights and queer rights are inextricably linked. Your book is about LGBTQIA plus and reproductive rights under Nazi rule. Can you introduce us to you and your work and uh, what this book is all about?
1: Jonathan, I grew up in a very small rural agricultural community in Southwest Georgia. I was very, very closeted. And the only thing that I knew about gay people is what I learned about on Sundays in church. How I made sense of all of the the feelings that I had was that, you know, homosexuality was a sin, which also meant that it was a choice. Right. And it wasn't until I went to college In my second year, I was working on a project in the library. I needed to get up and like stretch my legs. I was walking through some of the shelves when the title of one of the books just stopped me in my tracks. And my heart is still pounding if I think about it. It, the, The title was Growing Up Gay in the South. And I stopped and like looked around to make sure that no one was there and I pulled the book off the shelf. And when I opened it up, it was this collection of oral histories of queer people who were growing up in, um, you know, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. And the only choice really that they had made was to live openly, right. To live their true lives. And for the first time in my life, like I saw myself and, I realized that I wasn't alone. And so I read that entire book that night. I was too afraid to check it out because I was afraid that like someone would find out that Jake Newsome had checked out this gay book. Uh, And so I went back night after night and read as many books from that section that I could. In a way, my coming out story, I, I came out to books, right? Queer history held my hand and coaxed me out of the closet. And, you know, I was able to see that not only were there people like me growing up in the South, but like all over the whole world. And that we've been here for thousands of years. I wanted to be a historian, not just to learn more of those stories for myself, but to help identify and preserve and then tell those stories uh, for other people. So I hope that, you know, when folks get my book, they open it up and they will see themselves in the pages. They'll find validation. They'll see that queer people are really diverse sometimes problematic, but we are beautiful and powerful. Ugh, that literally made me cry. That was
0: incredible. So couldn't help but notice um, the chilling similarities of 1930s uh, Germany and Mm -hmm. now. What's it been like to study Nazi history at this moment in the U.S.?
1: Jarring, I think, is the word that comes to mind. I've heard so many of the people that I, that I live around saying, who could have seen this coming? Who could have imagined this moment? And I just wanted to say historians, especially historians of the Holocaust, I think we have studied, spent all that time studying how democracy slowly was eroded in Germany through the 1920s and into the 1930s. And I will say that some of my fellow Holocaust historians, you know, are quick to say, no, that's just hyperbole. We can't say that this is just like Germany in the 1920s. I respectfully disagree. Nothing is going to be exactly like it was in the past. Um, but it makes me think of a quote by Mark Twain and it goes something like this, that history doesn't always repeat itself, but it often echoes. And I think right now, like the echoes are deafening. Like we are watching a sustained attack. On our institutions of democracy, even though the right wing would never use the word themselves, they are employing intersectional tactics to go after queer people, after reproductive rights. In their mind, it's all connected. So it's, it's not a coincidence that we are witnessing, for example, an attack on the Capitol, right wing, you know, white supremacy, an attack on reproductive rights and the very worst year on history for anti-LGBTQ legislation. Like, it is all connected, especially once we realize that the Nazi regime wasn't just anti-Semitic, right? That it was racist, that it wanted to control people's bodies, whether they were Jewish or not. We shouldn't get into comparing suffering. That's not productive. But I also want to point out that things don't have to be as bad as the Holocaust to be bad and scary. If we continue to look at today's issues and say, well, it's not as bad as Nazi Germany, then we're actually letting ourselves off the hook. One of the lessons that I've learned from studying Holocaust history is that there were countless opportunities for ordinary people to defy and stop the Nazis up to a certain point. And by that point, it was too late, right? The Nazis had accrued too much power. So let's
0: go on a journey to the past. (laughs) It's 19... 20s Mm -hmm. it's early 20th century we are in germany honey and word on the street was in the 10s and 20s like wasn't it kind of fun to be gay like weren't people fucking and it was like kind of like a hot progressive like it was like the roaring 20s honey like we were just like you know getting fucked and topping and bottoming and versing and transing gender and like lesbians and like we were just having fun so before nazi rule how did people understand gender and sexuality is what i just said right
1: Yes, so Germany lost World War 1. Mm. So suddenly the the emperor has abdicated the throne and there's this new form of government. And what year is that again? That is in 1918. Mm. And for the very first time, a democracy is set up in Germany and it's called the Weimar Republic. And this is really important to even understanding gender and sexuality because now in a in a democracy, German citizens felt that they had certain civil liberties and freedoms that they didn't have when they were living under an emperor. And part of those civil liberties were the ability to, you know, live one's life the way you wanted to, even if that went against kind of traditional gender norms, mostly in private. Uh, I I will say that Um, in Germany's largest cities like Berlin, the capital city, uh, really Berlin by the 1920s became like a gay capital of the world where folks from New York and Paris and London were all flocking to Berlin because the queer folks there in Berlin had established a, a space for themselves that I'm not going to call it like full acceptance, but certainly an unprecedented level of tolerance that no one else in the world had had, had enjoyed at that point in time. And so even in Berlin, there were a hundred bars that uh, catered either exclusively to or made it known that it was a safe space for queer people. There were organizations, political organizations, there were cafes, leisure activities, sports clubs, uh, and a really vibrant gay press. Whether you were into politics or arts and culture or sports, you could find a gay magazine or newspaper for you.
0: And this just did not exist anywhere else because like London it's still very criminalized at this point Americas it's still very like the masquerade is there any other
1: places where there's like smaller versions of this there are small kind of pockets in other urban centers throughout the Western nations um, but Berlin is on a scale that is unprecedented and I will say that Berlin does not represent all of Germany at I, I mean Across the rest of Germany and in, in the rural areas in the smaller towns, they're seeing this queer culture emerging in the capital, and they're like, "Oh, let's try to keep it in the capital. We don't want it spreading out here into into the country." And so they're they're actually cracking down on queer places throughout the rest of Germany.
0: What about like Munich and Cologne? And like, were those as big then?
1: Definitely, there were queer scenes in those cities, uh, but but on a smaller scale. Especially Hamburg at the time was known as mm-hmm. kind of like a. Uh, uh, a gay mecca almost, um, second only to Berlin.
0: So, bigger cities, pretty popping off, pretty fun. Little ones, not so much. Uh, yeah. What laws and policies in the
1: 20s protected the queer community or left them vulnerable? So I would say they had very few that actually protected them. Uh, and in fact, when Germany was united back in 1871 for the first time, they had a series of laws in their criminal code called crimes against morality. Um, and so these were laws that uh, banned sexual assault, uh, pornography, abortion, and, and a lot of others. Um, that Even during the Weimar period, most of these stayed on the books. But in Berlin the law enforcement have decided to essentially relax their enforcement of the law because they're saying as long as these things are are happening in private and as long as it's consensual, we're going to stop enforcing it as harshly. There was an infamous law called Paragraph 175. Yes, what's the um, deal with this fucking thing? So it is. it is Germany's national anti-sodomy law.
0: Could straight people not have sex in the ass either?
1: Well... So technically, it was written in a way that was not discriminatory, right, that it could apply to straight people, too. But if you look at the enforcement numbers, it was very rarely enforced. But like, why are they so scared of anal? Because it feels so good. Like, they are so crazy. It's so rude. It actually began based on religion that this is a sin. By the time... Of the 1920s, and especially by the time that the Nazis come to power, it is all based on reproduction and eugenic ideology that essentially anal sex does not lead to reproduction. And so something that is against that, that is essentially robbing the fatherland of good Aryan children, is a, is a crime against the state. So
0: that's part of like some of the importance of like taking old faulty laws off the books, like for legislators to do that work and like get these fucking laws. Cause there's, we're always hearing about laws that are like, you know, 900 year old, not literally, but just like these (laughs) old ass laws. So how do the Nazis conceive of gender and sexuality? I guess that from what I just heard you say, it's like anything that doesn't lead to children is an offense uh, to the fatherland, those patriarchal fucks.
1: The most important thing to understand is the Nazis didn't believe that people were born Queer, born gay, right? They, they believed that homosexuality was a lifestyle choice. It was kind of a vice that anyone could choose. Um, and anyone could be tempted into. In fact, that's one reason they thought it was so dangerous is because that any of these kind of good straight men could be tempted into having sex with other men. They wanted to be able to contain what they saw as a plague of homosexuality.
0: So they're like reacting to their own internalized homophobia.
1: Essentially, because
0: they probably wanted to suck some <laughs> ding-a-lings too. And and they're like, well, if I can't suck dick and I'm having to do all this straight stuff, then all you fuckers better do it too. Which is yeah. probably what these motherfuckers in <laughs> America are doing too. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> having to eat all this. Punch oh, their f- They're just like, yeah, we've got to shut this down. We've <laughs> got to shut it down.
0: Um, anyway, um, oh my God, my professionalism only lasted for three minutes. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for freaking out, you guys. I don't think I've ever taken my book. It just started, I had like a
1: fuke state of rage. Um, <laughs> so I will say that, as you just pointed out, like this is not an idea that is unique to the Nazis, especially, I mean, at this time, it is widely understood that homosexuality is a lifestyle, right? The, the idea that people could be born somewhere on the queer spectrum was just. It was very new in Berlin. This guy named Magnus Hirschfeld was the first to argue that being queer was inborn, and therefore you shouldn't be persecuted because of it. And what uh, year is that? That is like late, um, late eighteen hundreds into the early nineteen hundreds.
0: That's even a long ass fucking time ago that we've been having this specific of of arguments around born or chosen, whatever, and yeah. the idea that it's new. Because like even that is that's over a hundred and. 20-something years of yes. this same conversation. So at this time, by the 1920s it and 30s, because mm-hmm. when did the Nazis start to, like, because didn't he kind of come up in the 20s and then
1: he got in trouble, but then he, like, really
0: came back? Then,
1: so, you know, he, the Nazi party is this really small fringe party in the 1920s. People make fun of them. They're saying, oh, they're so far to the right. No one's going to ever pay attention to them. Don't take them seriously. But then they slowly gain followers and they gain followers. And you're right. Hitler does in the early 1920s try to overthrow one of the state governments and take it by force. He's thrown in jail and essentially learns his lesson that in order for him to take power, for the Nazis to take power, they're going to to do it through the ballot box, which is ultimately what happens. They become the largest party in parliament, um, in the early 1930s, I believe in 1932. And then he's appointed Chancellor of Germany in January of 1933. And really by that point, you know, their, their main kind of platform was anti-Semitism against Jews, but they had made their stance on you know uh queer people and queer culture very clear from early on that you know they they said things like if left unchecked homosexuality will lead to the downfall of the fatherland because you know as i already mentioned they believed that it was robbing the next generation of the master race of of good aryan children but also they believed that it was a gender inversion essentially that it turned you know otherwise good masculine men it turned them weak and effeminate. It was not great because men had all of the leadership roles. And so they, they didn't want their men to become weak. And at the same time, they also believed that, um, it turned women masculine, right? They, they said like, Oh yeah, all all lesbians are masculine and therefore they're not going to be nurturing and mothering to our good Aryan babies. Um, and so they really, they really felt that, um, Again, this kind of queer lifestyle was not only a moral affront, but was a a very direct threat to the the social order of the government and the racial reproduction of of the master race.
0: And they also thought, above all else, that it was a choice, that yes. it was not something that you were born with. And did they have any like literature around like why they thought it was a choice? Did they just think that we were like whores who wanted to suck dick or something? Like, why did they think that we chose it?
1: Because of a, essentially a weakness of constitution. So they still think that you're born with something. <laughs> That's where, like, if you start listening to actually what they're saying and they're writing, there is kind of a, a kernel of, like, biological determinism there because, the, you know, some people might be born with a weaker constitution and can't really, you know, uh, confront their their desires to have sex with another man or another woman. But their
0: solution to that was just like, well, we're going to fucking kill you. Because it's not about the individual. It was about like service of the master race or whatever. So it wasn't about like your individual choices.
1: So here's the thing, like these details can be kind of down in the weeds, but it's important because it also defines how the Nazis treated different groups of people. So for example, because they believed that queer people didn't exist as kind of a separate group of people. And the fact that if the Nazi policies just were aimed at essentially conversion therapy of like really violent conversion therapy to get people to stop doing queer things and then reintegrate them back into society as good Germans. That was not the case for other groups of people like Jews, the Roma and Sinti, people with disabilities, Mm. because the Nazis believed that those people posed a really deep biological threat that could not be changed. Okay, I'm I'm using Nazi ideology here, right? But you could not teach a Jew to quit being a Jew. Like It was in their blood and that is why they had to be physically murdered. So the policies for queer people, at least officially, were not genocide and we're not like the wholesale mm. murder of all queer people because again the Nazis thought well, we'll just throw them in a concentration camp like really hardcore conversion therapy and then they'll be cured and we'll we'll bring them back into society. What if you couldn't
0: stop doing it with other with then would they kill you?
1: Then always death was like reserved as a last resort. We have to remember there's always a difference between policy and reality because on the one hand they're saying like sure we can we can cure you. We'll reintegrate you, but Their policies also led to the deaths of tens of thousands of queer people, you know, because they so-called wouldn't be cured or couldn't be cured.
0: So basically, choice could be changed through beating, not going straight to death. But now I understand why people on Twitter are like, don't fucking compare this, because, like, Mm -hmm. that's a really huge difference. That, like, Mm -hmm. some people were allowed to be tortured, but you had, like, a bigger, like, you had a way better chance of surviving if you were, like, a non-Jew queer person than, Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So... Basically, I just thought there was, like, the inversion, but were mm. they, like, not as threatened by lesbians as gay men or something?
1: Yeah, and it essentially comes down to misogyny and sexism. Because in Germany, like most of the, the countries in the world at the time, uh, only men had access to positions of authority, like, in the economy and in politics and in the army. And so, therefore, like, queer men or men who did not fit into those norms, because they had access to that authority, they were seen as the main threat. And mm. so the Nazis, I mean, there are documents after documents of, of Nazis sitting around talking about, do lesbians even exist? And if so, should we focus on, you know, including them in paragraph 175? Cause actually, one of the things I didn't mention is that paragraph 175 only applied to men. Mm. Um, and Nazis believed essentially that, um, they didn't want to waste law enforcement resources on going after lesbians when they felt that, Men just posed more of a of a direct threat. Um, they believed that essentially women that that a woman's desire was so tied to a man that okay, even if women you know messed around with each other, that as long as a you know as soon as a good man came around, they would just like go back to go back to the man. Um, and then at the end of the day, and this is really chilling, um, and this comes back to the, the thought about reproduction. There is a a quote from a guy who ended up becoming the the Minister of Justice who said that at the end of the day, all women are prepared for sex. So essentially, they are talking about the idea that women, even if they are lesbians, can be impregnated by force if necessary to help create the next generation of the so-called master race. Wow. So what about trans and gender nonconforming people? So really, the Nazis did not view transgender or gender nonconforming identities as legitimate. A trans woman would be considered a a queer man. Um and in fact they 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 lumped together all like gay men, bi men, and trans women as just under under the label homosexual. Their thoughts and their policies were defined by essentially what they termed, you know, what they considered the the biological sex assigned at birth. Um and they there was kind of no really gray zone. But what about intersex people? I, I personally don't know what the Nazis' policies were on intersex people. I think that probably according to their you know eugenic ideology, they would have either been euthanized probably very early on or sent to an asylum, but would not have been allowed to be part of the general public.
0: So trans, but would trans and gender, because they were like lumped in the gay group or the homosexual group, did that just mean that they were given like hardcore conversion therapy?
1: Yeah, we know a lot of um, the paragraph one seventy five convictions that you know we're finding in the archives. It's hard to to ascertain like how many of those were gay men or bisexual men or were you know trans women who just according to Nazi viewpoint was just just a gay man cross-dressing. There's still a lot of work to be done, you know, in the historical research to to kind of flesh that out. There's some really great scholars working on it right now, Uh, but it's it's hard to sometimes look for the identities that we recognize today because the Nazis kind of just collapsed them all into into homosexual. So,
0: Hitler comes to power in 1933. World War II starts in 40... 39. Well, for the, 39. <laughs> yeah. But doesn't the U.S. not get in until 41 40 or something? something. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, for but worldwide, it start, it's like 39 to 45.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So he comes in in 33. So then how do queer people's lives change under Nazi rule? Like what happens in Berlin and like in Hamburg as the Nazis take over?
1: It is quite sudden the 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 demise of this very public queer life and queer culture. Um, I mean, as as I said, the Nazis make it very clear that in even though they don't plan to like murder every single queer person, they very clearly assert that in the new Third Reich, in the new master race, there will be absolutely no room for queer life or queer people. And is that like a 1933 thing? I mean, actually, even into the late 1920s, I mean, they are saying it on their campaign stops. They're trying to win votes and tell people that we're going to clean up, you know, the mess that this democracy has left, you know, in Germany. They blame democracy for the increase in homosexuality. They're like, in a democracy, people are just weak and they're allowed to just chase after any pleasure that they want to. And some people are just giving in to their temptations and becoming more gay. Um so as soon as, as the Nazis come to power, within a matter of weeks, they implement a crackdown in Berlin, right? Cause, cause Berlin is all, it's the capital of Nazi Germany, but it's also kind of this gay capital, right? So it has a very symbolic meaning in queer culture. And so they implement a series of raids trying to crack down on all these bars and publications and organizations and drive it back underground. Um, and this, this really happens. Just surprisingly quickly, um, it kind of happens in waves uh, throughout Germany. For example, the first really big, large-scale um, raids in Munich don't happen until uh, 1934, and there are some gay bars that are still open in Hamburg in, in, all the way in 1936. Um, but I do think that some of those are left open on purpose for the like the secret secret police to you know put it under surveillance, and so that, that way they can. Get as many lists or, or names of, of gay men on their list as possible. So,
0: what does that look like? The raids on the bars? They're just everyone's thrown in jail? They go to the conversion camps? Like their families? Are like where our family? Or, or, or like what did? What does that look like?
1: So absolutely. I mean, they it, in those um, large scale raids like that. I mean, the police would show up. Um, and arrest, like, everyone that was there. Um, they would be charged with paragraph 175 uh, and then, um, you know, put on trial. At least at first, there was this semblance of, like, law and order, and we're going to do this the right way. Um, a Being sent to a concentration camp was not mentioned in the law, um, so th- it was still very much kind of like, let's be by the books. I would say the large-scale raids are probably— a little bit more rare where the Nazis arrested. Most people would be like arresting one or two and then forcing them to confess like the names of other gay people that they knew. And then, then like they would wait until they have a really long list and then they would just go after um, you know, in in Hamburg there's an example of it started with like forced confession of, of one person and ended up leading to the arrest of 230 other men. And essentially most of those men would have been convicted and, and served prison time If this was not their first arrest, they would then be considered a repeat offender, and then that's when they would be sent to a concentration camp.
0: (sighs) I've heard about how, like, after World War II, a lot of officials from the Third Reich ended up, like, assimilating into the U.S., (laughs) and in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, all the way up until Stonewall, like, a lot of these same police raid tactics were used in the United States to persecute and imprison queer people. Yeah. So... Like, we see cultures across time, across decades, like, show up to enforce evangelical Christian-centric policies, like, on queer people and their populations, just observing that. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, how do queer people react to these Nazi laws and policies, and how does the German public react to this onslaught of, like, 1933, 34, 35, 36, like, we're taking out the queers? I don't know why I did a Southern accent when I said that, but I did it. <laughs>
1: One of the things that has been inspiring to me as I've been doing this research is to see all of the different ways that queer people reacted to these policies. I mean, queer people are incredibly res- resilient. Uh, we always have been, we always will be, right? So, of course, um, you know, a lot of them did get caught up in these raids, in these policies, but, you know... <sighs> While they were victimized by the Nazis, I hesitate to try to, you know, condense them down to being just victims because they were individuals with really beautiful, complex lives. Um, Some of them went into hiding, right? They just said, "Okay, I'm not going to be publicly gay then. Like, I will just keep it to myself. A lot of like queer men and queer women uh, went into marriages of convenience to try to like hide their uh, queerness from the state. Um, some of them took up arms and resisted, like actively fought back against the Nazis. There's an incredible story of um, a lesbian resistance fighter in the Amsterdam named Frida Belenfanta, who with her gay best friend, whose name was Willem Arendais, helped forge fake ID papers for Jews. And then when things escalated, they actually helped lead a bombing against the registration office so that the Nazis couldn't find where the Jews lived. Um, and they were very both, uh openly gay right and like Willem arendais who unfortunately was caught by the nazis yeah he he was caught uh he didn't give up anybody else from the resistance group um there was a show trial and he was sentenced to an execution but right before he was executed he told his lawyer please do one last thing for me please tell the world that gay people aren't cowards and like that just like that'll just you know uh, arrow through the heart, right? I mean, that, that he saw it as his honor, that he could not only be a resistance fighter against Nazism, but fight these stereotypes that, oh, all gay people are cowards and weak. And, and, you know, he very purposefully tried to fight those stereotypes. So there is a range of how queer people reacted to these policies. And I think one thing that we can't ignore is that some queer people, in Germany were incredibly anti-Semitic and racist and found Nazi ideology appealing. There were mm-hmm. there were queer people who joined the Nazi Party um, and who you know thought that their their being so-called, you know, a part of the master race would would shield them. When it turns out that actually wasn't the case. I mean the Nazi Party then began purging queer people from its ranks, using violence, using murder. We need to keep that in mind that just like today, Queer people have all kind of different political yeah. statements and beliefs like the same thing back then.
0: Yeah, for sure. Gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was thinking, though, what was that nice man's name? Willem Arendais. How major. That really made me cry. So, OK, so what, what about like not queer people? Like how did the German public react? Were they like, good, great. Because I feel like those speeches that Hitler made that I saw on video, like it seems like people were like very enthused about his policies.
1: Yeah, This is one of the things that has has really just made my skin crawl from from the research is is knowing how widely popular the Nazis' anti-gay policies were amongst the German public. And in fact, queer people were among the first communities that were attacked by the Nazis because the Nazis were politically savvy and they knew that it could help shore up votes against people who otherwise might have thought... Uh, I'm not really into the Nazis anti-Semitism or they use too much violence, but rallying against queer people was something that the majority of the population in Germany supported. Uh, So we know, for example, that uh, average Germans understood that if they spied on and turned in their queer neighbors to the Nazis, that even just denouncing them would activate the power and the violence of the Nazi state against that person. One third of all of the ca- paragraph 175 cases that resulted in a conviction came from civilian denunciation. Which is very a la Texas abortion law. Exactly.
0: Wow. So, 1936, SS leader Henrik Himmler established an office for combating homosexuality and abortion. In 1937, he said the, quote, "...sexual sphere isn't the, quote, private affair of the individual, but signifies the life and death of the nation." Wow. If that doesn't sound like a little bit Republican, I don't know what does. So how are LGBTQIA plus rights and reproductive rights connected here?
1: I think that it's telling, right, that, that they thought of homosexuality and abortion as the same threat and like set up a single office to fight it shows that in their mind, the threat was to the Aryan birth rate. Their policies were geared towards creating reproduction Amongst those citizens that were deemed part of the, the master race and robbing the reproductive rights of those who were considered, you know, so called subhuman, essentially. Right. So I know that on your show, you've talked a lot about eugenics and, you know, controlling who gets to have sex. And there's this, um, scholar, Dagmar Herzog, who has written this really incredible book about how the Nazis, sometimes we think of the Nazis as being like, oh, really sexually repressive and conservative. Um, but really what they did was use eugenic ideology to redefine who could have sex. So again, they are, they are prompting and encouraging Aryan men and women to actually have a lot of sex, a lot of reproductive sex, like have as many children as possible. They're giving away like mother medals, like for having the most, you know, babies as possible. But at the same time, the other, the other side of the coin is that they're defining who can't reproduce. So that includes, you know, entire racial groups or who they define as racial groups like Jews and the Roma and Sinti, but also Germans with disabilities, whether it's physical or mental disabilities. They were afraid that they didn't want, you know, those um, genetic conditions to be passed down. And so they're writing laws that that individuals can be forcibly sterilized and eventually even murdered. You know, there was a a secret and then not so secret a program called T4, where they were murdering people with disabilities Um you know, a, a across Germany.
0: So, and then was there like restrictions on contraceptives and like restrictions on abortion because they didn't want like any termination of pregnancies or like prevention of pregnancies. Cause that was like a, that was an injustice to the fatherland.
1: 100%. I mean, there were incre- increasingly strict restrictions on um, contraceptives, so by 1941, there's a ban on all contraceptives in in German territory. Um, they're continuing to restrict abortions. That was called Paragraph 218, uh, which was the the law against abortions. The Nazis sharpened it. By 1943, there was even a move to assign the death penalty for someone who got an abortion or a doctor who helped someone get an abortion. Wow. Which, again, just, and obviously we're talking about
0: Germany, not the United States. But, like, if people were getting, like, abortions in the 40s in Germany, then they were obviously, like, finding ways to get abortions in the U.S. in the 40s. -hmm. Which means that, like, this shit is fucking rooted in goddamn American history. Back to your gorgeous book. So, your book traces the history through the symbol of the pink triangle. So interesting. So, are the pink list the list of the people who they would capture and then, like, give up?
1: Yeah. So there was, you know, these, these things called Rosa Listen, which is pink, pink lists. And these were the names and addresses, occupations of, uh, mostly men, um, who were either confirmed or even just suspected of being queer. Um and one of the things I want to point out is the nazis didn't have to start from scratch here either. The local law enforcement you know jurisdictions all over Germany had been collecting these pink lists for years, and so when himmler uh started this, you know, office for combating homosexuality and abortion in 1936. Essentially their officers just had to go to all the local police offices and say, hand me your pink lists. We're gonna, you know, centralize them in Berlin so that we can have this, you know, essentially a huge database almost of of queer people. Um and so these were, as you can imagine, a really terrifying tool that the Nazis used to be able to hunt down uh queer, queer people.
0: So then what's the origin
1: story of the pink triangle? Like it goes from the pink list to the pink triangle. The origin of the pink triangle stems from uh, the, the concentration camp system. And Jonathan, sorry not to put you on the spot, but how many concentration camps would you think that the Nazis had?
0: I feel like I remember some of the from class. There was like the worst one, Auschwitz. And then mm-hmm. the one that starts with like a B that's like Bergen something. Mm-hmm. And then there's like
1: I'm seven. Was there seven? So that is, you know, when I first started, like that those are the numbers that I was thinking, like okay, 10, 30. So the new research shows the Nazis had a a network of forty-four thousand sites of camps and ghettos and prisons, sites of incarceration, not only in Germany but throughout their occupied territory. So to me, that just completely changes like the scope of the Holocaust.
0: Because they might have done just like a little like corner store, like maybe you'd even make it to the concentration camp. Like they would just like go kill you in the corner or like throw it, like it wasn't these like, sent like there was like all sorts of places where you could meet your demise.
1: All sorts. I mean, so of course we think of Auschwitz because it's like the biggest, most famous, but most of people encountered this type of violence and, and imprisonment at a much smaller, more local Sight. People could not walk around their town or travel without bumping into one of these things. So like this idea that, oh, no one knew what was happening. It's, it's just a lie. Right? right. So in in this camp system, the Nazis had set up a way of badging the prisoners. Each prisoner had to wear a badge on their uniform that signified why they were being imprisoned. So, for example, um, political opponents wore a red triangle. Jehovah's Witnesses wore a purple triangle Jews, of course, had like the yellow, yellow star, the yellow triangle. Um, you know, all these different categories had a color. And these men who were imprisoned for being gay at the beginning wore different types of badges. Um, so a lot of them wore a black, uh, triangle, which was the, the badge for social deviance, which is kind of like a miscellaneous catch-all category. Um, sometimes they wore green, which is for common criminals. We know that some uh, in Dachau wore just a big 175 um, attached on their uniform for the the law, and then we also have at least a couple of survivors who mentioned that they were forced to wear a big letter A, which stood for in German ass fucker. Right. So so all of these different ways of labeling these queer men. Um, existed in the early 30s, and it was really by the mid-1930s things kind of became standardized when the pink triangle became the, the really standard badge for gay concentration camp prisoners. Oh my god, and was it pink just because of the pink lists? This is one of those things that has <laughs> been a question that's really plagued me during my research. Like, I wanted to know why... Why pink? Um, and the Nazis were meticulous note keepers, but I've not been able to find anything that, that showed like why they chose the specific colors for the different groups. Using kind of today's understanding of gendered colors, we might think that, well, it's a girl color and they wanted to, you know, humiliate the, the gay prisoners by, by kind of marking them as effeminate. Um, but really early in the, at that period pink was um considered a boys color it was it was like a lighter shade of red which was a really masculine color um and so art historians that i've talked to have uh guessed that um it probably came from the fact that in germany at that time there was a slang word for male prostitutes who had sex with other men called rosa rota which translates to like pinkies or rosies um that probably the Nazis were well aware of that slang term and so this probably influenced why they chose pink um, or rosa in in German as the color for uh, gay concentration camp inmates. So,
0: If you're a queer person in Germany during the Third Reich, if you were Jewish, there was, like, no. If you were Roma, there was no, like, if there was something that they decided was genetic, then there was no hope. But if you were, like, Aryan but queer, like, maybe we can fix you. But if you end up in a concentration camp, that means that you're, like, automatically a second of Fender.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, normally, you know, if it was your first offense, you probably wouldn't get sent to a camp unless there were other things that the Nazis viewed as as degenerate. So, you know, if you were a political opponent and gay, you probably were going to get sent to a camp. If you were Jewish and gay, you know, certainly all these different kind of intersecting identities might let you end up in a camp um more quickly. So I will say that even though the Nazis had... Inherited this national law, right? Paragraph 175. The way that it was worded when they came to power, they, they didn't like it. They, they, they found the original wording, um, constituted a roadblock. Um, and essentially this is because the German court system had established a precedent that they would only prosecute someone or, or convict them under paragraph 175 if so-called intercourse-like acts had taken place. You could only be convicted if it was penetrative sex. Um, the Nazis were like, that is way too constrictive. We want more flexibility in how to enforce this law. So in 1935, they amend it, where essentially the new wording is just indecency between men is punishable, right? How in the world do you define indecent? Like the, the whole point is that it is very vague, and they can apply it however and whenever they want to. And so really, after that 1935 amendment, the number of convictions and arrests skyrockets i mean i think it increases by 750 percent um so really we see the biggest waves of queer men being sent to concentration camps after that 1935 amendment
0: and was there like a specific concentration camp that you may end up at or was it just like the corner store ones like you might get killed right in your town you might get shipped somewhere like what
1: was that like So really, they could be sent to any of the camps. And we know Dachau Concentration Camp was the very first one. And we know that gay men were some of the very first prisoners there. So there wasn't like a, a singular camp just for gay people. But we do know that inside the camps... Uh, gay prisoners were often kept isolated in their own, like their own barracks. Um, the guards felt like they didn't want these gay prisoners to go seduce all of the other prisoners. Um, and so they tried to keep them, them isolated. They normally weren't sent to the killing centers like Auschwitz, right? They were sent to the concentration camps, w- which were meant for kind of the corrective therapy, so to speak.
0: Now, how often would they like re-release a queer person from a concentration camp? Or did they just like work them to death? Or did they do like programs and programs to like, or was it electroshock therapy? Like, what was it?
1: Here's the thing where you really have to kind of keep that difference between policy and reality in mind because, right, they were sent there with this idea that they were going to be um, converted. And so a lot of times gay or queer men were given the harder work details. They were given less food because supposedly like a hard lifestyle would reorient you to be masculine and straight. Um but there were also, uh, especially by the 1940s, a system where Himmler himself set up uh, brothels in the camps where they would take queer men prisoners and force them to have sex with uh, female prisoners as a way to, as they said, um, learn the joys of the other sex. So this idea that you were going to be forced to have sex, you know, straight sex, and then if you performed well, you could be released. And they judged that being performed well, like, Guards would literally watch through holes in the wall and see, like, were you having sex up to their standards to be released? Gay men were also submitted to really horrible medical experiments where doctors would, like, try to implant um, testosterone into their body and try to, like, make them more more manly and straight. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, a lot of men were told that they would only be released if they submitted to so-called voluntary castration Um, So you can already start to see the Nazis are thinking, like, we put these queer people here to change their behavior. And, like, it's a really horrible, harsh situation. Why aren't they changing? So maybe there is something, like, deep or inborn about it. And so, therefore, we'll just try to, like, take away their sex drive altogether. Like, we'll castrate them. And so that that way they just won't be deviant. And then they were um, released. Now, here's the thing. All of that to say... Um, on the one hand, there were supposedly all these options for people to be released. But we also know that the death rate for gay prisoners was about 65 percent, which was the highest out of all the prisoner groups, except for those who were slated for genocide. So on the one hand, they're saying we're going to convert them. On the other hand, two thirds of them died in the camps.
0: So would the non-genocide people be like gays, political opponents
1: like Jehovah's Witnesses.
0: But how come they could undo a Jehovah? Oh, because they said the Jewish people were a different race. A different
1: race. Like, it was no longer just about religion for the Nazis.
0: I hate the Nazis. I really do. Like, I, I really do. I just, I I just, yeah. I really do. Just, it's just absolutely the worst. So in concentration camp, lesbians had to do that too. Like, they had to have sex with men and they were isolated and stuff and pain triangle for lesbians and trans and gender nonconforming people.
1: Is it like, got more solidified? They didn't, you know, recognize gender non-conforming identities whatsoever. Trans women were often thrown in and, and wore a pink triangle. Um, lesbians didn't have their own separate category in the camps because a, a lot of times lesbians who were sent to the camps, the fact that they were lesbian wasn't the only thing that got them thrown into the camp. So maybe they you know, weren't married or they were a political opponent. Being unmarried was a reason to get sent to a concentration camp? I mean, at least put you on the Nazis' radar. And then they might start poking and prodding and being like, oh, wow, she's not married, but she also, maybe she's a communist, or maybe she's a spy, uh, or maybe she's a lesbian, right? So just the fact that you are not conforming to, like, German motherhood and, and being a good wife, automatically put you on, on the radar. So there were lesbians sent to the camps, um, especially there was one called Ravensbrück, which was the, the concentration camp for women. Um, and so, you know, all, all women, whether they were straight or not, were sent to, to this particular camp. Um, and most lesbians were marked with the black triangle again, which was this, this badge for the so-called social deviance.
0: So what was life like for queer Germans after the end of world war II?
1: This is where the story gets really, really messed up. The Allies have just won this war. They've defeated fascism and racism, and it's all about democracy and freedom. But the Allies, right, including the Americans, when they liberate the camps, they establish a policy that all the prisoners who had been, um, rounded up and imprisoned based on, um, racial Religious or political reasons were to be immediately released. But those who were so-called common criminals were to be kept in prison because they didn't want that to endanger Germany. So since the Pink Triangle prisoners had broken a national law that technically predated the Nazis, the Americans considered gay men to be common criminals uh, and so any of these Pink Triangle prisoners who still had a time left to serve on their sentence were taken from the concentration camp to a local prison to serve the rest of that time. Right. Mind blowing. Um, which I guess, honestly, it shouldn't be right. All of the allied forces, including America, had anti-gay laws. Do you know why it is mind blowing that part? No, but it is for me.
0: The reason it blows my mind is because we are sold this propaganda of American exceptionalism from such an early age that we freed all these people that <laughs> our greatest generation is Tom Brokaw fucking <laughs> has been telling me since I was six fucking years old, the greatest yeah. generation and the greatest generation looked at thousands and thousands of queer people and said, rot, bitch. Yep. Rot. Watch everyone else be released. Yeah. Watch everyone else get their life back, kind of. Yeah. But you stay here. Yeah. Um, that's insane. So so then the paragraph 175 after World War II doesn't go away.
1: The Allies say, okay, we're going to get rid of all these Nazi laws. When they come to paragraph 175, they're like, hmm. You know what? We're not going to touch that. We're just going to let the Germans decide whether or not they want to keep it. Well, the Germans decide to keep it so that when both, um you know, communist East Germany and democratic West Germany are founded in 1949, both of those countries have the specifically Nazi version of paragraph 175 written into their criminal code. So
0: 49 from 45. So for four years, all those people just stay in or
1: they get released if their sentence is over. But yeah. Wow. there might be in prison for another few months, another couple of years. It all depends on, like, how much time they still had left given to them by Nazis. (laughs) So
0: how were queer victims of fascism victimized again after the war?
1: Actually, in East Germany, again, the communist country, they they decide, like, we can't keep a Nazi version of this law on the books. So they go back to the original 1870s version, which is a lot more lenient. And therefore, the number of people that East Germany arrests under the law is is pretty low. West Germany, on the other hand, again, this free democratic country, they keep it, they defend it, and they use it. West Germany arrests about a 100,000 queer men with the Nazi version of the law in the first 20 years of its existence. So, yes, there are no more concentration camps, but you can still serve, you know, uh, time under the law. You can still pay a steep fine. Uh, it is still legal in West Germany, if you are accused of paragraph 175 violation, that they can take away your license, your your degrees. You can be kicked out of any type of union or political party that you're a part of. And it goes without saying that you can be fired or evicted for being gay. That doesn't say anything about the, like, the social stigmatization from your friends and family. So there is one story I want to tell of a guy named Karl Garath. Um, who survived six years in concentration camps under Nazi rule, right? In, including Auschwitz. Uh, after the war was over, he's arrested again under paragraph 175 and he is like floored when he gets into the, the courtroom and sees that the judge that is overseeing his case is literally the same judge that had sent him to prison under the Nazi regime, right? And the, and the, the judge Instead of saying like, I'm going to give you a lenient sentence, like throws the max at him and Carl has to serve five more years in prison in democratic West Germany.
0: So how did the new federal republic defend their actions? They were like, well, yeah, queer people are a threat or whatever. Like they were right about that.
1: They, you know, consistently said that uh, gay people were not victims of the Nazi regime. They were uh, criminals that had essentially gotten what was coming to them. Um, and after, especially after the the death and bloodshed of World War II, uh, the democratic government, uh, which was led by a pretty conservative Christian uh, political party, it was actually called the Christian Democratic Union, um asserted that West Germany needed to essentially up its birth rate because so many men had been lost during the war, uh, and so they really um upheld this idea of the ideal German was a father and a mother who got married and had a big family, and that you know showed good traditional christian democratic values, hauntingly similar arguments that the Nazis had made about why homosexuality was a threat.
0: So basically those like traditional family values ideas just immediately come straight back into play. And it's really central to their vision of like how they needed to rebuild Germany after World War II through that family structure of like mom, dad, kids. But now you could be like any race or religion. You just had to be het sis or cishet. For-
1: Pretty much, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, what alternative spaces and networks did queer people build? Like, does Berlin get like a teeny, tiny little underground back? Does
1: Hamburg or like no? Not really. I mean, it, there is kind of the the seeds of a queer space that that start to form after the war, um, but they know right that, that West Germany is really strictly enforcing the paragraph one seventy five, and so it, it really can't um, it can't blossom as much as they hoped. There is the very kind of baby seeds of a of a gay press that start in the late nineteen forties and early nineteen fifties. But in nineteen fifty three, West Germany passes this law, what they call the law against the distribution of written material that endangers youth. So this is a law that they use, uh, amongst other things, to ban homosexual publications uh, because it's supposedly a danger to the youth. And suddenly, now all of these you know, emerging queer publications are illegal again. Uh, and so all of the the spaces where queer people are able to talk about themselves in positive ways and even talk about themselves as victims of the Nazi regime are gone. It's off the shelf.
0: Wow. So in your book, you connect a politics of memory with a politics of power. How does this play out with treatment of queer Germans post World War II? It's kind of like what we just were talking about.
1: We all construct our memories of the past um, And whether we we do it intentionally or not, we pick and choose how we remember past events. And the politics of the present always shape the memories of the past. So queer Holocaust survivors uh, or queer survivors of the Nazi concentration camps tried to be recognized as victims of the Nazi regime. But lawmakers and police and uh, journalists and historians in West Germany all used their... Their power to remember queer people as criminals, um, n- and not victims, right? They wrote them out of history books, which allowed the persecution to continue. And so then in the seventies,
0: which are like, you have Stonewall in the US in 69, queer rights movements are kind of starting to bubble. And then in the 1970s, a politically active gay movement emerges in West Germany. So like, what conditions led to its rise?
1: Right, So as you just mentioned, across the world, there are these social movements for people who have been marginalized. By the end of the 1960s, this Christian Democratic Union in West Germany was out of power and the Social Democrats were in. Um, and so we start to see kind of a, a social uh, and political shift. Uh, in 1969, the West German government actually revises paragraph 175. They don't get rid of it, but they at least get rid of the Nazi version. Uh, and they essentially make it legal to be gay as long as you're over the age of 21, right? So this clears the way for a gay movement, uh, to, to emerge. And I think that, um, by this point in 1971, coming out was a political tactic right? It wasn't just a um, personal decision to publicly claim a gay identity. If enough people came out, it would help liberate the entire community from kind of social stigmatization. So it started all of these debates amongst West German queer activists about how does one be out? Like, How should one be openly queer? Um And there was a group in, in Germany who was really driving this decision, who I just... Um, it's one of those groups that you just really love to read about in history called the tootin, uh which translates in English to like fairies or queens. And so they were very purposefully um, gender non-conforming gay men who were visibly queer, right? So sometimes they might wear like jeans and high heels and, and makeup, very purposefully challenging the kind of the traditional gender norms of what it means to be like a, a man and a woman, right? And so these tootin, um challenged right, this myth that Germany had learned from its past and was somehow like a really tolerant society. Um, and they said that the gay movement needed um, to adopt a gay logo so that even straight-passing gays could see how society would treat openly gay people. So, of course, this opened up all kinds of debates about, like, What would a gay logo be? How how do you want to market oneself as gay to the rest of the community? Um, And there were all these different suggestions for a gay logo. But in 1972, there was a book published um, under a pseudonym named Heinz Hager. But the title of the book was called The Men with the Pink Triangle. And it was the very first book published by a gay concentration camp survivor who told their story. And so suddenly, like, the gay movement had their answer for what their symbol was going to be. And in March of 1972, there was this leftist kind of communist group in Frankfurt called Rootschevue, who used the the pink triangle as a gay symbol for their very first time. And Peter Haydenstrom, who was a activist and member of a group called the Ha'ave, which was like the, the gay activist group of West Berlin, um, said that the pink triangle was a perfect symbol for them because it not only provided uh, visibility, but it also represented a a chapter of German history that hadn't been dealt with yet. So these activists are wearing the pink triangles like on, on posters and on flyers and at demonstrations all over Germany. So once they, in 1971, like
0: basically, you know, revise paragraph 175. Um, and then there's these demonstrations, uh, this visibility does translate into political rights,
1: right? I mean, not not always, or at least not right away. Um, but I think that raising awareness and putting this issue into the public consciousness was the first step in starting the movement to turn those political rights into reality. And there's a historian, um, Craig Griffiths, uh, in the UK, who's written a really great book called The Ambivalence of Gay Liberation that kind of teases out some of these Successes and losses of the early gay liberation movement.
0: Because like, doesn't racism and sexism have to do
1: a lot with like some of the failures of the early gay liberation movement? At least in West Germany, uh, gay men and and lesbians had worked very closely together, at least in the beginning of the movement. Um, and the West German gay movement had really considered itself to be kind of intersectional in a lot of ways and that it was like anti-war and, and pro-environment. But soon it became clear that the movement was mostly focused on issues um, that were of direct relevance to, to cis gay men. Um, and lesbians really ended up having to break off and form organizations that met their specific needs as both queer and as women. At the same time, the West German movement did not really see racism as a German problem because uh, most Germans uh, considered Germany to be a like a white country um but really this it, this erases the fact that black germans and other germans of color existed and they had existed for generations um so this racism led to essentially segregated queer spaces where black queer germans had to form their own organizations to 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 meet their needs um and scholar tiffany florville has also written a lot about this especially queer women in germany
0: so but the dipentine triangle starts to make its way to the us cuz i feel like in the early 90s when i was growing up like I knew that the Pink Triangle had something to do with gay stuff and, like, HIV-AIDS stuff. So, Mm -hmm. like, what meanings emerged for the Pink Triangle as it makes its way to the United States?
1: Doing historical research, it's often hard to pinpoint, like, an exact moment of when an idea emerges or when something, you know, moves or changes. But I was really obsessed with trying to find the moment that the pink triangle jumped the Atlantic and, and arrived in North America. Um, and I was really able to find that, um, It all comes down to a guy named James or or Jim Steakley, who was a PhD student uh, at Cornell in the early 1970s. He visited West Germany, you know, many times, uh, and he he ended up joining some of those Haave, the the gay rights uh, group meetings. And he speaks English and German, so he's able to learn about the Pink Triangle, about the history of it. And he brings this uh, information with him back to North America, where he ends up writing for a really cool um, queer liberation newspaper in Toronto called The Body Politic. Uh, and he writes a series of articles on gay German history. And the January and February issue of 1974 is all about, uh, gay men in Nazi Germany. And like the, the cover story is like very prominently features a pink triangle. And so this is the first time that information about the pink triangle, um, makes its way to an English speaking audience in North America. In August of 1974, the Gay Activist Alliance in New York City um, at the recommendation of David Thorstad and John Lauritsen, design a pink triangle button for a protest that they're going to do in New York City. And this becomes the first documented instance of the pink triangle's use as a gay rights symbol in the United States. So from there, the pink triangle is used by American gay activists in tons of different ways all across the country. And it also becomes part of like AIDS
0: activism, too, I feel like.
1: Yeah, so by the 1980s, when the AIDS crisis is well underway, I think a lot of folks think of the really now iconic Silence equals Death poster that the group ACT UP used. This group of six activist artists in, in New York City get together and they d- design a poster to motivate uh the, the queer community into action. And yeah. what they design is this now really famous poster of the pink triangle with the peak facing up and the silence equals death motto.
0: Yes, that's I think that's, so that's like when it really goes like mainstream, but it had been being used for a hot minute. Yeah. So was the use of the pink triangle at all contested in these times or were people ever like,
1: mm. so there were some times where uh, people resisted it um, and, and said, look, Okay, we can't compare, you know, facing some social discrimination, uh, with being sent to a concentration camp. Like, that's just not the right thing to do. Uh, there were some people who argued that the gay community shouldn't use it, uh, because they didn't want the gay community's identity to always be tied to victimization. But clearly, despite some of this resistance, the pink triangle became incredibly powerful and meaningful To people from all kinds of different backgrounds.
0: Yes. So as we start to like wrap up, which like by the way, honey, such an amazing episode. We know how important it is to talk about archives and how we source our material, how we get into our research. So, how did you
1: conduct your research for Triangle Legacies? So in Germany, the big kind of state and national archives had very little information on the topic of queer people in the Nazi period uh, or on gay folks in the movement afterwards. Uh, and in fact, there's a story about in the 1990s, there's an archive in Hamburg that got caught destroying case files of the Nazis gay victims to make room for what they called more archive worthy material. Okay, so there is a very active process of erasure and silencing that still is happening even after German unification. So for my research, I had to rely on a handful of community-based, really grassroots archives, right? These were the results of queer people who were finding and collecting and preserving their own history, sometimes in like random cardboard boxes or even Ziploc bags. One exception is the Schwulis Museum in Berlin, which is um, kind of unique in that it is well-established and has great funding, I want to provide two examples to kind of show you what it's like to to research uh, this topic uh, in Germany. And the first is, as I was in the United States, I was trying to plan my research trip in Germany. I found this archive online that I knew was going to have information that I needed. I emailed with the archivist, um, set up a, a, an appointment for me to, to, to come and research there in the archives, this was like way back in the day before Google Maps on your phone. It's like I had to print out <laughs> MapQuest, I guess, like directions. Yes. Um, and I showed up to the address and I was in an apartment complex. And I was like, oh, no, did I like write down the directions wrong? But I find the doorbell, I ring it. And it turns out that this archives was actually this guy's apartment. He had been collecting so much over his life that it ended up being one of the most well organized and impressive archives that I've ever seen. But it just goes to show that literally without these individuals who've dedicated their life to collecting and preserving, um, this material, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the big archives. Another one is called the Center for Gay History in Cologne. And again, I would have to meet this guy, the archivist who would get off of work at five o'clock. And meet me in the archives, like we would both just sit there eating our, like, sandwiches or whatever, you know, and he would just sit with me until I rummaged through and found the information that I needed. And then he would go home, uh, you know, and, and, and live his life. This was all based on volunteer community dedication to preserving this history. So really this book, um, and really no queer history would be possible without these, these keepers of the archive. God we love them. Absolutely. What
0: were, what were some of like the standout documents or like conversations from that work?
1: I mentioned the, the Tuten, right? The, the fairies in, in West Germany who really were the ones to push for the adoption of the pink triangle in the archives. There is a 25 page document where they are laying out kind of the history of the pink triangle, why the gay movement needs any symbol and then they talk about why we need the pink triangle specifically so like just being able to find a moment where you know as a historian you're trying to find why did someone choose this particular document and then you find a 25 page document that actually lays out why we chose this symbol uh is just incredible but i would say over the the process of of researching and writing pink triangle legacies um the the thing that i'm most thankful for is being able to interview and then learn from all of these incredible queer giants who have fought for rights and essentially created the world that I get to enjoy with my husband and my son today, you know, having that moment to get to thank them for that is something that Uh, I will just always cherish. I'm really struck by that idea, especially in this
0: moment. We're having, you know, some sort of pushback to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. But I think a lot of activists have been saying, you know, they're like, they're coming for queer rights next. And a lot of queer people have been like, what do you mean next? Like with what's happening with trans people and legislatures across the country, it's going to soon be federal if the Republicans take the House and Senate. And like, you know, they're already trying to like legislate trans bans federally. As a historian who studies this, how are you making sense of this moment?
1: It's really alarming to me. The "Don't Say Gay" bills, right, are trying to say that queer topics are inappropriate, and essentially queerness should go back into the closet. That you have no right to be visibly, openly queer. And I think that that's where the pink triangle has a lesson for us: is that actually we do need to fight for that right to be openly queer. Did you know, Jonathan, that Gilbert Baker designed the rainbow flag? Right, great. Uh, But he designed it as a direct anecdote to the pink triangle. He and Harvey Milk uh, wanted something that was more joyful, had more soul for the gay community. And I'll just say that I have a rainbow flag outside my house. But despite the cliches, there's not always a rainbow after the storm. And I think that for us at this exact moment in time, we need something that will radically motivate us into action. Honestly, I wish that the queer community would reclaim the pink triangle again. Right and revive it as a really intersectional symbol of radical activism again.
0: Rainbows can be for us when we're like at group parties, <laughs> festivals for us, but outward-facing, because it's a both-and, we don't have to choose. That's they're true. like They're perfect for different times, places, you know, when we're dealing with the Kevin McCarthys and the Trumps of the world, <laughs> bitch! It's pink triangle, bitch! I'm about to pink triangle, okay? But when we're just, like, you know, trying to mind our own business, like you and your husband are, like, going on yeah. a walk with your son, then you can, you know, that you can have, or, you know, you can even have both. Like, I just, I'm a
1: very, like, both-and type of person, both and you know? is and is, is right. And I just think that sometimes, you know, we need that reminder from history that, like, we, we have these rights, but we need to fight like hell to protect them, because the pink triangle shows us what happens if we don't.
0: So we got to interview um, Dr. Elizabeth Alexander earlier this year about monuments and what monuments mean. Um, are there any, like, monuments for queer victims uh, and, or survivors of Nazi rule?
1: There weren't for a long, long time, um, which really shouldn't be a surprise, Right. Uh, gay people tried to take part in the annual commemoration ceremonies after the Holocaust, but they were constantly told, like, nope, you can't take part. Um, the first physical memorial to the, the Nazis gay victim was proposed, uh, in 1985 at the Dachau concentration camp memorial site. Um, but it was denied. It was denied for, for a decade. It wasn't allowed to be installed at the memorial site until 1995. Um, there actually, at this point, is a national memorial uh, in Berlin to the Nazis' gay victims. Uh, it was dedicated in 2008. Today, there are about 20 monuments in six different countries across the world, uh, which demonstrates that um, this chapter of German history has now taken on global dimensions where folks across the world believe that this is something that should be memorialized. While the construction of memorials and these sites across the world is certainly something to be celebrated, it also raises some issues and questions about the nature of the memories that are preserved by these memorials. So for for one thing, a lot of the research and the public education and the narratives that are told by these memorials focus on paragraph 175 and concentration camp, uh, Pink Triangle prisoners, while contributing to the uh, continued marginalization of other people, um, you know, like lesbians and trans and gender nonconforming people. Now, that's not to say that uh, scholarship and research on these other members of the community doesn't exist. I mean, for example, uh, Claudia Schottmann was is one of the first and really remains the leading expert on lesbians during the holocaust uh, and she is an incredibly prolific author uh, who has documented you know countless lives of lesbians some died or or survived the the holocaust um, there are you know a, a new wave of of researchers who are documenting um, other queer experiences including Laurie Morhofer, uh, Jennifer Evans and, and Anna Haikova just to name a few um, who are really shining a light on these members of the LGBTQ community beyond um, beyond queer men. Of course, all, as we talked about earlier, all of these politics of memory have consequences. So, for example, uh, lesbian activists and grassroots scholars have been trying for decades to um, commemorate and memorialize uh, the lesbians who died at Ravensbrück which was the Nazi concentration camp for women uh, there have been um ceremonies commemorative ceremonies at Ravensbrück um or at least attempted since the 80s but since 2016 a group known as the Initiative of Autonomous Feminist Women and Lesbians in Germany and Austria have petitioned to place a a permanent memorial to lesbian victims at Brook, and they have faced extreme backlash from folks uh, who were saying that because there wasn't a single law like paragraph 175 um, or because there wasn't a single kind of triangle category uh, for lesbian um, inmates in the camps that lesbians weren't really persecuted and I think that one of the things that at least was shocking to me at the beginning was that a lot of the resistance is coming from gay men, right? Who are saying that, oh, well, you can't compare what the, what gay men and lesbians went through because gay men, you know, were targeted with a specific law and they had a pink triangle. They had their own category. Um, but I think that one of the things that we need to learn is that we need to have a truly inclusive memory. This year in 2022 was the very first time that the memorial to the lesbians at Ravensbrook was able to be permanently dedicated there at the Ravensbrook Memorial site. 2022, I think to me shows that this history has taken on a, a global dimension, right and that people are, are realizing that um, it's not just something that the Germans can commemorate, but that all of us should should remember.
0: And a note on intersectionality: There were also queer Jewish people mm-hmm. who had to stay in prison. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were a common criminal who's convicted of sodomy or Article One Seventy Five, and you were Jewish, you didn't automatically get let out afterwards because you were Jewish. So, like, there's intersectional ways
1: that that is that right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, and in, in, in cases like that, it might depend on the individual allied officer who was you know, reviewing the file. And they could say, like, look, you're Jewish and you probably got, um, you know, persecuted for, for your religious or, or racial um, identity, so I might let you go. Or if that person happened to be a particularly homophobic person, they could say, oh, we also said that you got uh, arrested under 175, so we're going to keep you here.
0: Intersectionality is so important to think about. So in 1979, a German lesbian activist named Viola Fielder hmm
1: yeah. yeah Wild. Viola Fleeter, Fleeterwild. Yeah.
0: Fleeterwild. I love her. <laughs> I made a flyer that said normalcy. No thanks. I love her. Yeah. Uh, so what's the importance of saying no thanks to normalcy?
1: History shows us that we should never have to fit into anyone's definition of normal, right? Because who, who gets to define that? Talk about the politics of, of power, right? Um, when you define normal, you're always signaling, uh, you know, that entire groups of people are not normal. Uh, so we don't even have to look at Holocaust history to see the result of, of, you know, what happens with there. I mean, American history has plenty of examples for us to, to, to learn from. And so I think that we should all be leery, right, of trying to fit into what's normal or as, you know, Florida's don't say gay bill, um, it calls it age appropriate. Uh, we, we, we should be really leery of, of those types of, of definitions.
0: And my final question is: How do you feel that we can live in ways that honor queer history?
1: I think, on the one hand, I hope that we are inspired to turn our queer ancestors' dreams into reality. Like we we can't become complacent um, and just reap the benefits of what previous generations have fought for. Like we have to continue help open up doors for others who you know, continue to be the targets of oppression. And I think you know, the best way to honor queer history is with action, right? We have to create space and resources for all, all of the different wonderful ways of, of being queer.
0: Mm. Honey, I love you so much. Thank you so much for your time, your work, your scholarship. This has just been like such a massive joy. Dr. Jake Newsom. thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious and your book, Pink Triangle Legacies. Get into it, y'all.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting
0: Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Dr. Jake Newsom. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, please, and show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim.